and get through that. As you're turning there, let me remind you of a quote that probably many of you have heard from Gandhi. Gandhi is famously quoted having said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They're so unlike your Christ. I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Jesus followers because they're nothing like your Jesus. As primarily British missionaries moved into India in the 1800s, some of them had great motivation. Some of them wanted to share the good news, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Many of them had mixed motives. Many of them came sharing the good news of Jesus, but it was kind of entangled with and even dominated by a political agenda or allegiance to to the United Kingdom. Now, we experience this in some places with missionaries that we send today. There's, there's mixed reviews of, of other countries of how they receive missionaries. And Gandhi in India, he, he observed as these missionaries came, he said, so-called Christians are above all others seeking wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come along to exploit others for their own good. Their own prosperity is far more important to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of other people. So Gandhi was intrigued with the ethic and the lifestyle of Jesus. He really was. But, but many of these so-called Jesus followers, these missionaries, they obstructed the gospel. They obstructed Gandhi from being able to see who Jesus was embodied in community by their lifestyle. Their lifestyle was contrary to the lifestyle of Jesus to the ethic of Jesus, to the kingdom of God. And so that's where he says, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. They're so unlike your Jesus. And this sentiment and this feeling is true in many of our communities today, isn't it? How many of you have heard people in your own life say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, or I dislike the church, or I have questions about the church, or I've been deeply wounded by the church, and it, and it has obs- obscured, it has obstructed my, my vision of Jesus. I'm not able to see Jesus clearly and to follow him clearly or, or untangle some of the wounds and the hurts because of the hypocrisy, the judgmentalism, and the politically motivated Christians that I've known. And our text today in 1 Corinthians deals with this exact issue. Paul is going to give us some examples of how you and I can kind of clear the way for other people to see Jesus. See, if we're not careful, our witness for Jesus, it it can become cloudy. It can become cluttered. We can put things in the way of people clearly seeing Jesus. And that's what's happening here in 1 Corinthians. Well, in Corinthians, the, the letter to the Corinthians, right? The first letter, actually the second letter that Paul wrote, the first letter is lost. And so Paul writes this letter to this church this messy church who is getting many things wrong. They were obscuring the gospel. They weren't clearing the way for people to see Jesus. They were clouding the way for people to see Jesus. And Paul, their founding pastor, addresses this, and he he writes to them to instruct them how they can clear up the gospel message and how they can clear up their lives so as to not obstruct or obscure the gospel message. And so that's what he's been dealing with here in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And today we're in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, so open up a Bible. It's on page 956 in the Pew Bible. Get your eyes on it. I'm not going to have you stand as I read through the text. Usually I like to do that, but it's a longer section of Scripture today. So I'm just going to walk through it kind of section by section, and we'll look at it. And what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 8, last week he was talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols and how 
how we handle our own personal liberties and convictions and freedom, it can obscure or obstruct the gospel. Last week we talked about that putting liberty before love, it obstructs and obscures the gospel. We as Christians are called to love first and foremost before we exercise and practice our rights. Last week, chapter 8 dealt with that in the context of food sacrifice to idols. Now chapter 9, Paul is actually going to give us an example of what that looks like from his own life. How, how we can clear the way to the gospel, clear the way to Jesus, to help people see Jesus as supreme and lovely and good. Rather than saying, well, we like Jesus, but we don't like Christians. Paul is going to say, here's how you can live your life in a way where it's more congruent. Where somebody who has an intrigue with Jesus' ethic and Jesus' kingdom, could also look at Christians and say, I have an intrigue with their ethic, with the way that they live their life, with their sacrificial living. And so as we move into chapter 9, here's kind of the, the context or the big idea for what's going on in chapter 9. The Corinthian Christians were valuing social status over humble service and personal liberty over sacrificial love. The Corinthian Christians were valuing social status over humble service and personal liberty over sacrificial love. In the context of this church community, they wanted Paul, their founding pastor. So as Paul writes this letter, he's not in Corinth any longer. He was there for a year and a half. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. He, he moved to the city. He started the church. He told people about Jesus. They became Christians. He baptized them. They formed into communities in Corinth to worship Jesus. This is a church, right? It's a people who say we want to worship Jesus and gather together to learn and to grow and to push each other in our pursuit of Jesus. That was happening in Corinth. And then Paul moved on to different cities to start different churches. But as we have said, there had been a report back to Paul that the church was messy. They were arguing. They were conflicted. And one of the issues going on in this church, and we talked about this a few months ago, the first four chapters deal with leadership idolatry. And so there's this idolatry within the church about leadership. They had these different camps, these different leaders that they wanted to follow, and the church was arguing with each other over what, which leader to follow, which one was better, which one was a better orator, which one was a better speaker, which one was a better shepherd, which one cared more deeply, which one cared about the poor more deeply, right? You pick your value system and then impose that on a leader, and this is what the church is doing. Well, I prefer this leader, that leader, this leader, that leader, because they line up with my personal values, and so that's happening in the church. And related to this idea of social status, they wanted Paul, see in Corinth, oratory and, and rhetoric and philosophy was a big deal. And the status that like a, a public leader, a, an expert TED talk giver, or kind of a figurehead, you know, like the, your, your favorite podcaster, the status that they had, this church, Corinth, they really wanted their leaders to have that kind of status. That kind of influence. The type of presence when they walked in a room, everyone was like, yeah, we followed that dude, right? Have you heard this podcast? Are you, are you in the know? Are you in the group? That's, that's the guy. This church wanted Paul to be that. Because in their context, in their city, there was following of people. And so the more influential that you could be as a public figure, their mind was the, the better that would be for Jesus and his kingdom. And Paul, he's not fitting our desire for social status. He keeps making a fool of himself and us. He, he, he's not playing the game of the world of power, of status, of prestige, of power. He keeps making a fool. And so there was that going on. And also, as we talked about the last couple weeks, there's also this, this pursuit of personal liberty rather than sacrificial love. 
and it related to their sexuality, right? In the church, there were people who wanted to pursue sexuality in any form or way that they wanted. They were, in fact, taking pride in their sexuality and their sexual pursuit. And Paul has addressed that. He's given them a high biblical sexual ethic. And, and, and the biblical sexual ethic is to come underneath God and, and his order and what he designs and declares to be good. And it's also to give yourself away sacrificially in marriage to your spouse, not to just practice your sexuality however you want, whenever you want, when, wherever you want. And then in chapter 8, he dealt with this personal liberty thing, again, related to eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And so that's the big idea here. They, they are frustrated with Paul because they're not proud in the type of leader that he is. And is it so different in the church today? I mean, the global church deals with this, with, with food sacrifice to idols. The, the American church definitely deals with the, the liberty, personal liberty around sexuality and personal liberty around just our own rights. Paul is saying that he wants the strong, the mature ones to lay down their liberties for the sake of the weak ones. And I think about the church in America and we... We have so many pastors who are trying to keep up with CEOs and social influencers, and there's this celebrity personality cult within churches and pastors, right? I, I don't know how many pastoral trainings I've been to where they try to train you like a CEO how to run a business. I don't know how many church conferences I've been to where they have a celebrity speaker and all the people who come, they're just like so excited and then the celebrity speaker flies back to their own town and does their own thing and then everyone tries to adopt their model of ministry in a different context, a different place and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't and even when it works, it usually helps the church to grow and then the thing implodes later on. How many churches are embracing a non-biblical sexual ethic? Because it because we don't, we don't want to be constricted by somebody else. We, we, we want to exercise our liberty, our freedom. How many churches, how many Christians are more concerned with their personal rights than doing what's right? And it can get politicized, right? Whether it's the right to bear arms or whether it's a woman's right to choose. Putting our own rights before what may be right to somebody else. And so this is very much the water that we swim in. This idea of, of social status and personal liberty coming before humble service and sacrificial love. And so let's dig into this and, and see what Paul has to say. Verses, uh, the first three verses here, he's going to make a defense for his apostolic status and his liberty. He says in verse 9, actually let's look at verse 13 of chapter 8, as we move into 9, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's his attitude as we finish chapter 9 and finish chapter 8, move into chapter 9. He's saying, I'm willing to give up all of my liberty. He has the right to eat meat. We talked about that last week. But I'm willing to give it up if it would build up another person in the faith. And then moving into chapter 9, he's going to give us this example. He says, am I, am I not free? That is, free to eat meat. Am I not an apostle? An apostle is just a sent one. It's one of the early founders of the church. He's sent on mission for God to proclaim the gospel and build churches. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? On the road to Damascus, Paul 
His name, Saul, was met by the Lord in a miraculous way. And he was a persecutor of Christians. And then he became a Christian himself, a worshiper of Christ. We know him as Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Have I not seen our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Remember, he, he was there. He planted the church. So this very existence of this church is, is, a, is a testimony to God working through him to build a church. He says, if to others I am not an apostle, and because there's debate among the churches, the people who really care about social status, they're, they're trying to undercut Paul's ministry and say, well, he doesn't, he, he's not impressive enough, so let's maybe call into question his authority, his apostleship among the church. And he says, if, if I am not to others an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This very church exists because God sent me there as an apostle to plant the church. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. And so Paul here is just reminding this church that he has apostolic status among them. He's sent of God to proclaim the gospel. That's a better status than being elevated in the eyes of the world, than being popular among the Greeks or powerful among the Romans. His status is as one sent from God, not sent by government, not sent by intellectuals, but sent by God to proclaim the gospel and to build the church. This is my defense to those who would examine me. And, and he also has liberty, right? He's saying, I have the status of an apostle among you, and I also have liberty. And we talked about that in chapter 8. He has the right to eat meat. And now he's going to give them an example of, of how to lay down this right. Paul calls the church to lay down social status and personal liberty by modeling humble service and sacrificial love. And so like a good parent or like a good leader, Paul isn't just telling the church what to do. He's also modeling it. Right? Hypocrisy is when we say one thing and willingly and consistently do something else. We all have levels of hypocrisy, right? I mean, we all have aspirational ideas and speech that we don't measure up to. But the hypocrisy that damages is when it's perpetual and consistent. And Paul here is showing us that a good leader, a leader worth following, is one who's what they're saying and what they're doing, they're, they, they match up. At least you're striving to apply what you preach. And Paul here is going to give them an example of this. Verse 4, he says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Peter. And so Paul is single, and he's doing his ministry as a single man, and, and people are starting to like elevate that, or they're actually disregarding Paul because he is single. And he's saying, I have the right to be married, but I also can serve as a single. He's saying, I have the right to eat and drink, but... I just told you that I'm giving that liberty, that freedom up for the sake of others. Verse 5, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Peter. So many of the other apostles were married and they traveled with their spouses. There were missionary couples, missionary teams, church planting couples and teams. Verse 6, he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And so what's going to come into question here is the, is the issue of payment. One of the reasons that the church looked down on Paul is because he wasn't taking payment for his ministry. 
And in their culture and in their context, a good leader, a good orator, a good philosopher, the better that they were, the more money that they would receive. And so they would go into public squares, they, they would give their talk, and then people would give them money. And this was a sign of status, right? This was a sign of worth. The more people that come out to hear you speak, and the more money that is given, that, that justifies your existence as an orator in Corinth. And Paul is taking no money. And so this church is like, Paul, again, he's making a fool of us. He's not running with the elites. He's not, he's not proving his status. He's not fitting into the cultural and world system. And he goes on to make this point that he has the right to be paid, but he's going to lay it down for the sake of the growth of the church. And so he starts, you know, as this point says, all the way through verses 4 through 23, Paul calls the church to lay down social status and personal liberty by modeling humble service and sacrificial love. And so here's how he does it. He gives us four examples all related to his right to be paid. Verses 4 through 7 relate to common sense and practice, right? He, he says, while other apostles travel with their spouses, that, that's common sense and practice. If you're married, you ought to stay close to your spouse if possible. Travel with each other as, as often as it's possible. But then he also says, these other apostles are getting paid for their ministry, and I, as Paul, I have the right to be paid for my ministry. And he uses this example of a soldier they don't serve at their own expense. They serve at the expense of the Roman government. Or the one who plants a vineyard, I'm in verse 8, without eating any of the fruit. Well, if you own the vineyard, if you plant the vineyard, if you work the farm, you can eat your own stuff, right? You can try an apple while you walk through the orchard. Of course, it's yours. You, it, it may, it may, it may uh, change your bottom line by one apple, but it's your apple. You can eat it. Or one who tends a flock without getting some milk? How many dairy farmers do we have in here? Not many. We live in St. Louis Park. But if you're a dairy farmer, you have the right to drink some of that milk. Pasteurized, unpasteurized, I don't know, skim the coat off the top and drink that warm milk away. All you want, right? It's yours. You have the right to. And so Paul is using this, this common sense and common practice reality to help them understand that if you put in the work... You, you deserve to get some of the benefits, some of the fruit. And then verses 8 through 10, he uses an Old Testament precedent to, to justify his right to be paid and to, to just remind them that this is a right, a right of his. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same, the Old Testament law? He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it not for oxen that God is concerned? And this is a weird quote. But he's saying that an oxen can eat the grain as it does its work. Right? And he's saying, and, and isn't God far more concerned about people than oxen? Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Of course he values you more than the animals. You're created in his image. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. There's just this idea from the Old Testament that the person who puts in the work 
receives the reward. They get payment. And then verses 11 through 13, he gives us this idea that spiritual produce should result in material provision. Look at verse 11 through 13. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, right? Paul came, he planted the gospel, he's teaching the Bible, he's sowing spiritual things. Paul, by the way, worked as a tent maker on the side. And so this is part of the issue with social status. These, these cultural elites and these intellectual elites, they despised hands-on work. They looked down on it. That's like poor man's job. That's blue-collar's work. We, we work in the, the realm of the mind and the intellect and the university and the, and the amphitheaters. And so Paul, the very fact that he was building tents with his hands, it's like, you don't, come on, Paul. Don't associate with that group of people. And so that's, that's part of this issue here with the social status. And, and he's saying, so Paul is actually doing a material job to produce his finances. But he's also saying, verse 11, he's giving this spiritual precedence for a pastor, an apostle being paid. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it not too much if we reap material things from you? Okay, so if I preach the gospel, should I not also get a paycheck or, or help from you to cover my bills. And he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I'll come back to that. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings. Remember, in chapter 8, he talked about food being sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. And, and the people who work there would eat that food. It's part of their payment. It's part of how they do their life. Also, in the Old Testament, the, the priest could use some of this food, some of the offering brought to the temple. And so he's saying that, that spiritual investment results in material gain. This is just how life works, how history works, how the Bible works. And then verse 14, he, he uses Jesus' model in teaching. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so Paul here is making the point, he has the right to be paid. Now, I'm not giving this sermon so that you keep giving me a paycheck. Thank you for a paycheck. You're an incredibly generous, gracious church. I really had to wrestle with on my sabbatical if I, would, if I would still preach if it wasn't for a paycheck. Because when I started preaching, when I started pastoring, I loved it. It was pure. It was, it was out of an overflow of my heart for God's word and his people. Then you get paid for a while, and then it starts to become a job. And do you always like going to work every day? Newsflash, a pastor doesn't necessarily either. And so a sabbatical is a great gift because I wrestled through, have I started doing this for a paycheck? And Paul here is modeling that, that somebody led by God, somebody passionate about the things of the gospel, they will do it whether they are paid or not, even though a pastor has the right to be paid if circumstances allow for it. That's Paul's point. And so he's reminding them that he has the right to be paid, but then he follows this up by reminding them that that. He's, he's practicing this teaching, that he's showing them how to live in this cultural context, in this church context, where there's so much pressure to elevate yourself or to elevate others socially, to seek social status and standing. And when there's such this cultural air being breathed about personal liberty, 
I have the right to, I have the freedom to, I, I'm able to. He's saying in that, when you swim in that water, when that's the air that you breathe, you need to be reminded that that's not the Jesus ethic or the way forward for the church, but rather it's to lay down your personal liberty and it's to humbly serve others and sacrificially love others. And so then he gives them this example. Back up into verse 12. In the middle of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we, him and Barnabas, specifically in this context, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. What an incredible response. Paul is so concerned that other people would see Jesus clearly, that he's willing to lay down his right to be paid, which he had just made a great case for. And the reason that he lays down his right to be paid in this church is because it was an idol for them to pay their pastor. It would have played into their status-seeking symbol. And so he's saying, among you, I didn't receive a paycheck because that actually cuts your pride. And we need our pride to be cut down and, and, and severed at the root. And so they're wanting their pastor to be awesome, to be influential, to be powerful, to be paid well, to, to work among the social elites. And he's saying, nope, I'm, I'm not doing that. Because then it's going to puff you up. Remember how chapter 8 said knowledge puffs up but love builds up? And so he says, in love, I'm going to sacrificially lay down my right to be paid. And I'm going to work hard as a bivocational pastor. I'm going to build tents while I carry the burden of the gospel. While I plant the church. Where I point you to Jesus. So that you see what real sacrificial love looks like. So that you see what laying down your liberty and your rights and your freedoms for the sake of another person looks like. So I'm not just telling you what to do, but I'm actually showing you what to do. This is what Paul does. He doesn't want an obstacle. We live in Minnesota. I was talking with a friend recently who moved here not too long ago from California and somebody, when they moved here, they, they got like a rundown from a local about what they needed to have prepared to live in Minnesota and somebody was like, make sure you get good windshield wipe, wipers. And they were like, that's weird. Never talk about that, that in California. Windshield wipers are like an afterthought. And then they're like, and then it started to snow. And I realize you need good windshield wipers. Because if you have those old janky ones that miss the window that you actually, right? They get all of your windshield except for that one little spot that you need to see out of. And, and, and he's like, yeah, it's important in our culture to have windshield wipers because you have to remove the obstacle. I can't see out my window clearly and drive safely if that's not there. That's, and that's what can happen if we're not careful with our status seeking in the exercise of our personal liberties, is we can obstruct people's vision of Jesus. That's why Paul says that I, I take great concern not to put an obstacle in the way. Rather, I'm, I'm figuring out, I'm spending my time, I'm being poured out, trying to figure out how do, I, how do I clear up the way so that people would see Jesus. Verse 15, he says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. See how in verses 1 through 14, he makes a defense for him to be paid, right? Like, how do you not pay your pastor after he tells you all of that? And then he says, but I'm not writing these things to secure any provision. I'm writing them to remind you that I have the right to be paid, but I'm laying down that right. He says, I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. And this boasting, he's talked about boasting early in 
earlier in this letter, it's boasting in the Lord, boasting in who Jesus is, boasting in what Jesus has done. He doesn't want to boast in his oratory skills or his, his ability to walk philosophical circles around the other, uh, the other minds in Corinth. He wants to boast in Jesus, in the cross, which he has already told us is weakness to those seeking power and foolishness to those seeking intellect. But Jesus is his boast. Verse 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what he's driven by. He's motivated by the good news of Jesus. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so that not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. I'm doing this out of the overflow of my heart. And in this context, him being paid would obstruct the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What an incredible heart posture. He's not exercising his rights. He's not, he's not taking his liberty. He's not taking a stand. He's not planting his flag in the ground saying, nope, these are all the things that Jesus died to secure me in the temporary, and so therefore I'm going to exercise these rights. He's saying, no, I'm becoming a servant to all so that I might win some, so that some people might see Jesus more clearly by my lifestyle. I think motherhood is a beautiful picture of this. Like I said, I have a mom, and I'm married to a mom, and that's a lot of sacrifice. A lot of laying down of yourself, becoming a servant to every demand and whim of your kid. Actually, you shouldn't serve every demand and whim of your kid, but it's a draining, laying down of your life for another person. Paul is saying this is the model for Christian living. It's not seeking status. It's not exercising personal liberties. It's being laid out, wrung out, burnt out for the sake of other people. And then he gives us this word, he gives us this imagery of contextualization. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this word. If you're newer to the church, you probably haven't. Contextualization, it means making the gospel make sense to a different culture. And so if you are a Christian in India, right, one of Gandhi's pushbacks is that some of the Christian missionaries in India, they were bringing their British culture into India, and they were trying to impose British culture among the Indians. Some Wise missionaries came into India and they, they assimilate into Indian culture so that they could proclaim Jesus. It's not about changing culture. It's about changing hearts. This is a contextualization. If you live in Wisconsin, rural Wisconsin, or rural Minnesota for that matter, you probably do ministry a little bit differently than if you live in the Twin City metro. Right? Churches ought to handle different issues a little bit differently. There, there, there should be a little more emphasis in one community versus another community. I grew up in small town, Grand Marais. Well, I spent the first half of my life in Brooklyn Center and then moved out to a suburb and then moved up to Grand Marais. And the way that you talk about Jesus in a town like Grand Marais versus the way that you talk about Jesus and, and the things that you emphasize it's different. You don't change Jesus. The message never changes. The gospel is the same in all cultures. 
But the way that you present the gospel, the way that you talk about the gospel, the, the, the liberties that you give up in this culture versus that culture, the way that you undercut status and, and pride in this culture versus that culture is different. That's what Paul goes on to tell us. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Now, Paul was a Jew. He's an ethnic Jew. He was also a religious Jew. And then he became a Christian. And now he's saying, okay, so there's some Mosaic law. Most of that is done away with. But when I'm with the Jews, I'm, I'm going to operate, I'm going to speak the gospel in a way that it makes sense to them. Like if you're with a millennial or a boomer or a buster or a greatest generation, you might need to use different language. Try preaching to all of them. It's tough. Right? There, there, there's different... There's different emphases, there's, there's different needs, there's different language that means different things to different people. I hear slaps is a cool word now. I don't know what that means, right? Like the kids are saying slaps, what is that? I don't know. To older people, it's like, well, that's offensive, you shouldn't slap anyone. I, but if you're going to preach to teens, you've got to figure out what slaps means. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And this is the heart of a good missionary. Like when we think about cross-cultural missions, they go into a different culture, they learn the culture, they learn the language, they, and they figure out how to present Jesus. But let's not just think about cross-cultural missionaries, let's think about cross-the-street, cross-the-cubicle missionaries. We've got to learn the culture, we've got to learn the language, we've got to learn the idols, we've got to learn the joys, we've got to learn the struggles of the people that we do life with so that we can clear obstacles from them seeing Jesus. Your inability to flex on your religious tradition might be an obstacle for somebody to see Jesus. Your inability to consider a different theological position that's not salvific, but just a secondary issue, might be an obstacle for somebody to see Jesus. Your, your status-seeking or your liberty-exercising might be an obstacle to somebody seeing Jesus. And here Paul is saying, you, we need to be willing to rip everything away except for the essence of who Jesus is and what he's done so that we could embody ourselves in communities and point other people to Jesus. Like Jesus, the great missionary who left heaven on high and incarnated himself among us. He walked among us. He embraced a language. He embraced a culture. He embraced a people group that was foreign to him. Right? He was in heaven. I don't know what language they were using up in heaven between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all the angels. They, he comes, he's speaking in Aramaic, embodying himself in this people group, proclaiming the good news in a way that it would make sense. And then he closes out this chapter with this beautiful reminder and this challenging reminder for us. Paul uses an athletic training metaphor to motivate followers of Jesus to run the race of a faithful life. There were the Isthmian Games that happened in Corinth during this time, every two years. It was, so the Olympic Games were every four years, and every two years they would have the Isthmian Games, and these were hosted in Corinth, and this was a huge part of their culture. And so he uses this imagery to remind the Christians about what the call to the Christian life is. 
He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, and these, ra- the, these games, the Isthmian games, they had, they had races, they had boxing, they had wrestling, they had swimming. It was similar to the Olympics. In a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. The, the crown for the winners in the Isthmian games was like wilted celery. That's, that's what they got. Like, you know, in our, in our culture, we have trophies. Like, you want to win the trophy, the Stanley Cup or the, the World Series, you know, trophy. Like, that's what you work for. In their culture, they worked for a wilted celery crown. And that was, that was something to them. And he's saying, so these athletes, they, they work so hard to get that. But we, an imperishable crown. Paul, in other places in the scripture, he has, he has referred to the church as the crown and, and also to the crown that God gives a servant for a faithful life. And he says, so I do not run aimlessly. Are you running your life aimlessly or with purpose? Are you seeking social status? Are you just exercising personal liberties for the sake of your own self-gratification? Or are you running with a purpose? He says, I do not box as one beating the air. Boxing was a big part of the Isthmian games. And if you're going to win, you're not going to win by practicing on boxing the air. You need to get in the ring. And so he's saying, I, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He calls the Corinthian church to discipline themselves, not to be distracted. We live in an age of distraction. Honestly, if you want to pray for me right now, you could pray that I would be disciplined to the things of God because it's so easy to be distracted. Church family, I can't can't tell you how easy it is to be distracted with just life and its demands and also its joys and to get lost in things that we like. And now God gives us good gifts to enjoy, but sometimes they can become a distraction. It's easy to get distracted by the demands of life and the joys of life. And so we as a community need to remind one another to discipline ourselves and we do this as a body. It's not just you and me individually disciplining ourselves to follow the Lord. This is Paul embodied with this community reminding them of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to pursue him together. He disciplines his body to keep it under control because he doesn't want to be disqualified. He doesn't want to be kicked out of the race. So he calls us to run the race of a faithful life. Reminds me of one more passage that I want to close down with today as we take communion. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? We are called to do this together. That's why every week when we gather at Park Community Church, we, this is a discipline This is a way for us to to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's a way for us to throw off our, our desired social status and standing. 
It's a way for us to remind one another that our personal liberties must die for the sake of love. We gather around a perfect Savior who was crucified in our place and overcame sin and death in the grave. And so I want to invite you to take communion with me if you are a follower of Jesus. There's a communion packet in front of you. Could you peel back the first layer and pull out the wafer? And then as you do, would you close your eyes and and pray with me as we take? Jesus, we thank you for the race that you ran, the faithful life that you lived. And then you sat with your followers who were confused, who were frustrated, who had their many idols, who were seeking social status and personal liberty themselves. And you broke bread and you passed it to them. And you said, this is my body given for you. Remember me as you eat it together. Let's eat. And Jesus, after passing the bread, you passed the cup. And you said, this is the covenant of my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Remember me as often as you take this. Let's drink it together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I pray that you would motivate us for faithful living. God, may we discipline ourselves together as a community to run the race of a faithful life. May we put you above all others. May we be willing to lay down our social status and our personal liberty for the sake of humble service and sacrificial love. In your name we pray.